Welcome to 600 Pixels, a podcast that goes below the fold of the World Wide Web to see how professionals in the industry design and build better digital experiences for everyone. I'm Travis Self, a front-end developer here at LifeBlue. And I'm Caitlin Studley, Director of Culture here at LifeBlue. We also touch on accessibility a tiny bit, um, but JD is going to be speaking at the Big Design Conference here in Dallas at the end of September, so we definitely encourage you to check that out, um, but give it a listen and yeah, let's get into it. Welcome to the podcast. This week we have JD Bush with us. He is a solution designer at LifeFlu and he's had a really great career uh, moving from print design to environmental design to digital design, which is what he does with us here now at LifeFlu. So we thought it would be fun to invite JD in today to maybe talk about some career stuff, some design wisdom that he has gleaned from his many years in doing that. Um, so welcome to the podcast, JD. Thanks. And I appreciate you saying that I had a have had a great career. By all appearances, it seems that it's been great. Is it over yet? It's definitely not <laughs> over yet. <laughs> that sounded aggressive. Is it over Are yet? Are you firing me? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've invited you to the podcast here today to yeah, fire you. This isn't a retrospective of your career. I mean, it can be a retrospective if you want it to be. <laughs> it can. Does that make you feel old, though, if we say it's a retrospective? Like... A little bit, you know, like a, you know, this guy's about to retire kind of thing. <laughs> I mean, it Let's definitely has career. it had its moments, are its you, acts. It's been in several acts. Are you hoping to be entered into the Designers Hall of Fame? Oh, <laughs> you know, go out on a, a high note. Is that a thing? <laughs> no pressure. I'm not even forty yet. That's no, not I don't think it is. Yeah, just kidding. Uh, so, what act would we be in right now? Yeah, is this the fourth act? Oh, geez, I don't know. If you were to group your design uh, careers into segments, like would this be Act Four? Um, there's definitely a wishy-washy act of what am I going to do? Mm-hmm. When Does was that, that count as an act? The best I haven't gotten into it The yet? first act or was that That's the between? first act probably. Okay. So that's like college. Everybody has that act. That's like pre-college, college, and okay. even after I graduated. I was going to say, say we uh, all, we've all been there. I've had a couple of revisits to that chapter in my life. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Some people go back to that again and again. Yes. Yeah, it's a well-worn chapter in my book. Yeah. Well, I mean, you could argue that I kind of have gone back to that again and again if I... Okay keep changing what I'm doing, but at least it keeps life interesting. Yeah. Gotcha. Absolutely. Can we start maybe by having you describe what a solution designer does at LifeBlue? Because I feel like for, yeah, for many folks, that's not as common of a title. So maybe we can talk a little bit about what you do here and we can kind of start there. Sure. Uh, It is not a common title. It's because at Life Blue, I think one of the major philosophies is that we wear many hats, that we're all T-shaped. And so, the you know, I haven't talked to those that when I sat down and, and started at this position, uh, like, hey, where did this title come from? Um, but it's kind of an amalgamation of lots of different titles and lots of different roles that you might find elsewhere, like a UX designer or a UX ar- architect or... Um, you might call them an experience, something or other. I think there's portions of it that are in strategy. There's portions of it that are kind of like a product owner. Um, you guys interface with the clients too quite yeah, a bit. We have a strategy that's set forth. And then after that strategy is in place, uh, I come in and say, okay, this strategy is super high level. Uh, it is good for five to seven years to help bring your digital presence forward. Uh, but it's also super lofty, and we have now have this six-month project. What are we going to do with this strategy? 
and what I know about you guys and what's going to have the biggest effect on your business to then turn that into a solution. And so it's never like, it's not cookie cutter. There's not a formula really to what I do. Um, even the deliverables that I present back to them or even hand off to a team, it varies each time. I'm sure the teams here probably are driven crazy by that, but no comment. <laughs> uh, but it, it's just truly different for every single client and it, it's just meant to meet the needs of the project and the needs of the client. And, um, you probably still don't know what I do by the way I just described it, but <laughs> I have a better idea. <laughs> yeah. So how did you first get interested in design? When did you know, Hey, design is going to be my thing or I'm going to try it out and it's appealing to me. Yeah, I think I have a similar story to a lot of designers in that whenever I was young, or at least a lot of designers of my age um, or my generation, in that when I was young, I didn't know that design was a thing. I knew that when I was younger, I loved to draw. And then at some point, I don't know why, uh, it never, it was not the cool thing to do is to keep drawing. So I kind of stopped that. And then early memories even into high school is just playing around in front of a computer and I was really into sports so I would recreate logos and um, typography and all sorts of stuff in the early versions of Microsoft Paint. Oh, oh wow. Love it. <laughs> okay. And I would throwback. do it I would do it pixel by pixel and go through and then love I would that. print them out and put them on my wall. I can't even imagine that. I love it. And in I paint. wish I wish I still I had like the the three and a half inch discs that had all the stuff on it, but you I, just dated I yourself. Uh, yeah, exactly. <laughs> See, now you know how old I am. I interpreted that when I was younger as, Hey, I'm really into computers. Mm. Um, because I know a lot about them. I help my parents with them. That's not a good sign, but you know, don't um, we do. Yeah. yeah um, yes, we all do. <laughs> Shout out to my mom. <laughs> right. Shout out. Love Our you, Colleen. Number one listener. <laughs> Caitlin's mom. <laughs> um, so I associated design with computers, and I started off as a computer science major. Um, I, for whatever reason, in college, decided that was not what I wanted to do, probably because I was good enough at them that I tested out of the first year or the first semester, and I started right smack dab in the middle of the intermediate classes, and it was way over my head, so I... Uh, probably was just a quitter at that point in my life. I was like, I don't want to do that. <laughs> nope. That obviously I'm not good at this. Turned into, I was going to say humble brag, but it went from humble brag to just nope. flipped um, right back. I'm out. <laughs> no, not a humble brag. I'm a quitter. I'm a quitter. <laughs> I was a quitter at that point. And, um, so I switched, I, I went to A&M and the closest Texas A&M and the closest major I could get uh, to design once I realized, oh, it's not the computers that I like, it's the design portion of it, uh, was journalism. And you can have an emphasis in graphic design in that portion. Oh, interesting. That is interesting. I wouldn't think that that would be part of the journalism program. Yeah, I guess for just those Print that are laying design, out newspapers. Yeah. So did you do a lot of that like in, in your college days? So yeah, my first design job was in college. I worked for the univers university press. Okay. And so you were using a lot of InDesign, I imagine. There was a different software at the time that was more popular. It was right when InDesign 2 came out. It starts with a Q, right? Quark, Espre Quark yeah. Express. Yeah, okay. I've heard that before. So I started in Quark Express in our classes, and we switched over to InDesign Okay. in the middle of so it. So InDesign was like the new 
hotness. The new hotness. Yes, yeah. it was InDesign 2.0. Um, so I would lay out books at the university press and that is the most entry level tedious tedious type. I mean, it's going through doing searches and replaces on an author's book for like replacing ligatures, which I don't know if you guys know what that is. I mean, I just fell asleep (laughs) just right now. Yeah. (laughs) Every, every F I combination I'd, Oh yeah, to the FI ligature, okay, and, then, yeah. and then I'd have to. Yep. I'm yeah. just basically typesetting the whole book, making sure there wasn't any awkward line breaks, and that it didn't end. That sounds brutal. Yeah, exactly. It was super boring, but you learn a lot when you're doing boring stuff too, like all the details and little things that no one, you think no one cares about, but a lot of people do. So, did you go from from that as your print job into environmental design, or did you have a print job? No, no, between I had that? I had many before that. Okay, and like. You know, I was familiar with the web before. Like in high school, I would mess around with it, and I had a few different websites that I would manage in college. Would you say you were the webmaster of those I websites? I was <laughs> the webmaster when that term was a, a real. Or when it used to stay on the footer of all the websites, contact be like, the webmaster. Contact the webmaster. Contact webmaster JD Bush. Yeah. So, so does that mean you, when you were the webmaster of these websites? <laughs> Did, you didn't do any development work, though. Oh, I did. Oh, you did? I did, yeah. Tables. I did all table-based. Yeah. It's back when all the navigation was in Everything iframes. Is a table. You put your I left remember. nav in your iframe. I remember that. Definitely no responsive design. I wasn't even a term. So it was all H- just straight HTML and iframes and stuff like that. I remember those days as well. Yeah. So I did a lot of... I did a few different websites using that and then went away from it and then... Until Life Blue, um, and I was familiar with you know all the other technologies, but I'd never been in them like I had back in the early two thousands. So, so a lot had changed by the time you got back. A lot had changed, yeah. So, what was your first official design job, quote um, unquote, after college? I'll do the speed run through them just so you can kind of see everything that I worked on. Um, I worked at in house at a very small company doing. Everything from design to marketing at a dental practice management company. Yes. Sexy. Um, thing. Uh, is it the one that everybody not, works at? Because there's one that a lot of not, people, you've John, probably seen the resume. John, are you talking about the one that Johnny worked at? Maybe. Uh, I don't remember the name of it, but you probably see it on resumes all the time. It's No, there were eight people that worked at the Okay, one. never mind. Yes. But there is one and that kind of everybody go, comes from. It's like a they do websites for dental practices like cms systems yeah it wasn't even just websites they did business consulting and one of them would was a marketing arm of it which the marketing arm was me um so that's what i did for eight months then i worked went and worked uh they went out of business i went and worked at a print shop a smaller print shop um really learned a ton ton there but would if you looked back on my career is probably you would probably consider it the biggest failure as far as if you followed me around day to day um i messed up all the time because i just didn't know anything about it and they had no one there to train me so I was, was just it like figuring the, it out the, as I went. the printing side of it that you were messing up on or like yeah yeah like and the, just the pace of things when you work in a print shop versus a agency or a design shop is so quick you're billing clients on 15 minute increments so it's like hey they want a business card you have to typeset the whole thing plate it to these poly plates and send it to the pressman in 15 minutes so you were the one doing 
most of that. I would all do of some, that. Yeah, I would do. I would do some of that, and then I was also expected to fifteen minutes. Yeah, it would be wow. stuff like that. But did you guys have like templates that you were working off of, or was it sometimes? No, sometimes like we'd grab old stuff and and work off. Come of the up template. with a new design in fifteen minutes. Yeah, but then I did that. I did customer service. I did. I back in the bindery putting stuff together. I did a little bit of everything besides on the press. So I was expected to learn a lot in a very short amount of time. So I screwed up all the time. I mean, I didn't know how to plate anything or how to set up a file for print a two-color job because it would be on a two-color press. Um, And if you sent it to the uh, plating machine as a four-color job, then it would distribute the color all wrong. Or if you accidentally left a logo that the client sent to you in an RGB format, then it would mess i would do that kind of stuff all the time oh my gosh you had to convert it from rgb to cmyk and yeah. Back and forth. yeah so i was there for four months uh by the time i was getting the hang of it i'm like now i know what i'm doing and then they fired me so that was great i mean that's probably a good thing right <laughs> yeah it was because it was kind of a toxic environment yeah they, yeah that doesn't sound you'd like you'd go into meetings and the guy would be like hey we screwed up this job and you guys are just going home at night but that's my mortgage that you're Okay. Oh, <laughs> like, yeah. okay. okay. I don't really want maybe, to be around you anyway. So. Maybe train us. Thanks for letting me know to. how to do it in the first place. <laughs> right. yeah. maybe. Like, is there a handbook? It was a, yeah, it was a smaller place and it was not a great place to be. Yeah. But it was the place that in the shortest amount of time I learned the most about just the world of print and the technical sides of things, not in process or in design. I didn't become a better designer from being there, but I learned so much about how it works and uh, how it all works together that I was able to use that to get my next job, which was at a publishing company um, that published uh, DVDs and did a lot of, I did all the packaging for them. It was a Christian publishing company and they put out studies. And so I would design all the packaging. They sent it through the mail. I did cardboard boxes, but because I knew at that point a lot about printing um both in four color and in spot color, I I was able to kind of be the jack of all trades there and be the designer um, that kind of ran everything. Um, so I did that. Uh, I got real sick of you can. There's a theme here. I get I get bored of things. Like, Should we be concerned? No, no, no. The boredom level. No, I just think that place... It's okay, we're firing him in a second. Yeah, exactly. Remember? Remember, reti- this is your retirement He's episode. Even, <laughs> this is a send-off. Yeah. Yeah. What, um, a, great, what a great send-off, eh? <laughs> Being on our podcast. <laughs> Do like us a favor. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I was the only designer there, and there was a lot of collaboration happening, but not really amongst designers. Like, you know, I would get feedback like, hey, can we make this more orange? I'm like, Why? Because I like orange, and like no, okay. So, I, <laughs> but I like but, so, orange. But did you like? So you're saying that that kind of like taught you how to it push back, me. but like, but explain why some yeah. of these requests wasn't necessarily the right decision. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I had to explain, defend to myself constantly, um, and I'd say I became a much better designer there, but not necessarily a better thinker because the way that I would talk to them. Uh, in-house would be much different than how I would go and sell like a freelance client that I had at the time. I found mm-hmm. myself if, when I was around my freelance clients that I could talk about strategy. I could talk about their business goals. Um, and I couldn't do that when 
um, I was being dictated to use orange because they liked that color. <laughs> yeah. So. Did they tell you to make it pop? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> That's a at least you once wanna, a day. If you want to make any designer instantly have like flashbacks, just say, "Hey, can you make it pop?" And yeah. watch them pop. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> PTSD. <gasps> yeah. Exactly. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um. So from there, I I wasn't seeking out environmental graphic design at all. I was just thinking for new opportunities where I could work with other creative people. Uh, definitely got that and got a job at an architecture firm. And I was there for eight years. Again, huge learning experience. I'd say um, for the first year, all I was doing was learning. I didn't fail quite as much as the last place where I was learning the most, most of the time. But um, yeah, for a solid year, I was trying to figure out how to work in that uh, industry. And I think that's where I really started to take shape. And um, what's the non-cheesy way to say I found myself a designer <laughs> as a designer? You found yourself. I found myself. You really came into yourself as a designer. Well, y- you learn that design is not not about um, what typeface you're using and what color you're using and how to just make it look flashy. Um, but it's about what are the goals of the project um, and learning to step back and thinking about it holistically. Because when you work with architects and interior designers, I think one of the first things that threw me off guard was uh, one of the first things that I designed at the firm is a, um, I want to say about 80 foot tall monument sign. And when you go from print and looking at an eight by 10 book to an 80 foot tall monument sign, things change. Remember designing something and then them coming back with questions like, okay, what material is that made of? What does the back of that look like? What, ooh, I never thought about before with paper. It's the back of the sheet, sure, but now you have to think about the back and the sides of this. Every angle of it? Every single angle. So what, sure it looks good. what is an environmental designer? Because I had one so, assumption of what that was and I'm finding out that I was wrong about that assumption. Yeah. I th- well, so it sounds like you were making signage and like signage is part of it. So I'd say the key part of that is actually an environmental graphic designer. Okay. Uh, environmental designer can be a part of interior design or just. I kind of thought it was like sustainability spaces. type stuff. Yeah, uh, but well, they've actually changed it now. It's no longer environmental graphic design. It's experiential graphic design, which I'm not sure is much better. But they just changed the name, basically. Yeah, it's designed for uh, three-dimensional spaces. Yes. Okay. And gotcha. Experiences. So you think of an architecture firm, and how does a company's brand shine through in a dimensional space, in their corporate headquarters, or in their retail store, or their any identity, of those. basically. Yep. I didn't really understand until I interviewed here, and then I learned that, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you and Gene had both worked on the Hilti corporate offices, which are about a block from our current office. Yep. And I remember being so excited when Russell told me that because I've been in their office, and I thought it was the coolest thing ever because they have all of these different tools and things incorporated on the walls. And I was like, what a cool way to, like, construction companies aren't sexy. Like, Hilti's famous for inventing the jackhammer. Like in Germany, it's known as, you don't say past the jackhammer, you say like past the hilti. 
which is crazy. And I learned so much about them. But being in their office, I was like, I had no idea you could make tools look cool like this. Yeah. And it was so neat. So when uh, Russell had told me, he was like, oh, yeah, those designers that like did that space work here. And I was like, what? <laughs> That's awesome. So, yeah, it's it's interesting. There's so many like titles in the design industry are so I feel like we've, we've gotten a little out of control with what we call things now. So it's always yeah. trying to find something that sounds cool. But experiential design makes a little bit more sense just because of the environmental association of that being yeah, like I, an outdoor right. environment thing. But yeah, I, I assume that that was like bleeds certification type work yeah. and stuff like that yeah and then I mean, there's definitely there was definitely a lot of people in our office that did that that the did that interior yeah. design side or the architecture mm. side uh, we as environmental graphic designers got roped into a lot of the print side of the stuff like the brochures that you have to have for yeah so you did some of that too yeah it was all over the place um, did you ever do any web stuff mm, or digital no but we did digital you did digital stuff yeah like so, banners and stuff um well, especially towards the end when signage is becoming more and more digital, you know, you have, that's true. it's all digital yeah. billboards. Um, a lot of, you think about experiences. Um, so we did a lot of concepts with um, even using like Xbox connects and walking in front of these screens and how do they react to your presence? Like and the one at the Perot museum, like the, yeah, like the, the wooden mirror, at yeah, the Perot yeah. museum mm-hmm. it was a big, uh, I remember really exciting, uh, seeing that at the Perot Museum because yeah. we used it as references for on our projects all the time. Oh, that's cool. Before it got installed at the Perot, and then they installed one of those. Um, but I think it's just anything and everything. You think about, um, we did a headquarters job, and um, there was a lot of concepts around how do you display history. It's like a combination of this is like a display shelf and a screen that's um, – a custom shape in your logo and we have these um, I remember look, working with 7-Eleven trying to use like flexible neon to have a 3D version of their uh, a Slurpee cup that has dis- uh, live Twitter stream coming oh through it. Did you, you know, get things to keep like that? This. Well, I left there before that job finished mm. and you know, we would dream on places on things like that just like here. Uh, you dream on big concepts and mm-hmm. then it gets paired back to something and you might keep one of the biggest ideas. Reality that, hits. Budgets. Yeah. Budgets. So that's the kind of stuff that I worked on before. So then how did you land at Life Blue? How did you go from doing environmental graphic yeah. design and then making your foray and debut, shall we say, into the world of digital? In digital. And web. The web. Well, the World Wide Web. It comes full circle because that's what I started on, you know, working in HTML tables before. You return to your webmaster <laughs> so roots. you say, <laughs> when you were interviewing, you would say, no. I know all about tables. <laughs> I know all about, yeah, I used to build my own sites. Were you, you like, know? can I have my nickname on the website be the webmaster, please? <laughs> yeah, they used to call me the webmaster. Right. Um, no, you know, it was more of an organizational thing than anything. When you work for an interior design or architecture firm, and you are a graphic designer and you did a million different jobs, the emphasis, you could only affect clients so much because what really ran the show was the architecture and in the interior design. Um, and that's fine. Like, I, I don't think there was anything wrong with what we were doing. I think we were having a lot of impact there, but I wanted somewhere where I could have more direct contact with a client and be able to make an impact and see it right away. Um, and you started as a graphic designer here. 
I did. I, I started as an art, di- an uh, art director. Art yeah. director. That's right. Yep. At Life Blue. The old IAD. Yep. And I have uh, been in a few different roles. And I, I would equate that to... Um, Being the, T-shaped. Yes. The fact that I would take projects at the beginning and just start making assumptions myself and doing them myself, even if there wasn't a defined scope. Um, and then I would sketch out wireframes of it before we had content and just make the page myself with what information I knew I had, um, which is very close to what I do now other than the design part of it. Um, So that's kind of how I got into the the role I'm in now is that I uh, do a lot of the planning beforehand, uh, both on the content side and the UX side, and then hand it off to designers and to developers to be able to execute execute upon their really their vision in the ui uh, i i'd really just help with the, the functionality and work with clients to make you sure give us the sort of the skeleton of it the skeleton basically and for most people they call it wireframes but yeah. we don't call it that we we go the block diagram route or priority guides which gives more freedom on the team side to be able to make ui changes to achieve the goals so yeah i mean it's sometimes difficult to see your block diagram and realize that it's not set in stone and we can, we're free to make decisions on it however we want, but it's a starting point basically. Like this is what's important from the client's perspective. I've laid it out in a priority and and we're supposed to take it and go the next step with it. So yeah. Which is a little different than most agencies because most agencies, someone is making those decisions and saying, here's what what you build wireframes. Here's a wireframe. Now you build it. And it better look exactly like the way it does mm-hmm. in these comps. Yeah. Otherwise, I will be unhappy. Yeah. So a lot of times, like, you guys will put, like, hey, this should be a carousel here. And we are supposed to interpret that and sketch it out in a different way, perhaps, or come up with a better solution other than a carousel. But we get the idea of, hey, here's multiple things that are going to, you know, we want them to be able to navigate or browse these things in some way. Right. And it might not be a carousel when the site launches, but we're we're supposed to just get the idea from carousel here you know and that could mean any number of different things but yeah the idea is that there are multiple photos with information tied to each of those photos that need to be displayed without scrolling exactly that's like the requirement and then oh that's a carousel well sure but you could also do something wild with it if you wanted to exactly yeah we're supposed to sort of you know see it and reinterpret it that's the better way to do it or it might end up being a carousel but at least we perhaps thought through different ways to execute of the time it is a carousel but we're not tied. You're not tied to it. That at the end of the day, hey, I was told to make a carousel. Exactly. Um, it's we really encourage people to the teams that are executing upon it to to think about the problem, think about uh, what we are trying to solve here, and while a carousel might be the most the logical solution four out of five times, there's that fifth time that it could be something greater or better or different. And we wouldn't be, yeah, we wouldn't be doing our jobs if we didn't try to think through a different way of doing things, you know, other than just like, well, that's what the block diagram said. So yep. here's your carousel. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, well, going back to, I mean, one of the reasons we wanted to have you on the podcast is because I think a lot of the narrative we see that is public facing in terms of design careers and 
just you know we're kind of living in the age of uh everything is is uh influencer kind of status right everything is Mm -hmm. bright and shiny and perfect but we know people's careers aren't like that right like i've had failures in my career i'm sure maybe travis has had some in his or maybe he's perfect what have we had failures in our careers oh yeah yeah all the time um so I love the idea of kind of digging into that and not that we need every detail, but just in terms tell of me all of the times you <laughs> tell have failed. me every time you failed, we're going to, uh, we're going to just let you speak for 10 minutes and list every failure you've ever had. In your life. <laughs> um, no, but I'm kind of curious, you know, you, the way you talk about it, you have rolled every quote unquote failure into successes and you have transitioned and pivoted several times throughout your career. And that is impressive. And so I'm curious to know, if you think that maybe there was a certain trait or an attitude or a perspective that you kind of had in terms of uh, overcoming some of these things, like what do you think made you successful? What what made you able to quit computer science but pursue de- design? What made you able to be fired from a job but still able to bounce back and really still find your way in your career and navigate it since then? I'm, I'm just curious to know your thoughts. Sure. Um, well... As far as some of the, I think I talked a little bit about the print shop. Um, I could, there wasn't one great big failure there. There was just every day at least one thing that was a learning point for me, whether it was how to convert an RGB into a a two color or one color job without making it look gray when it came off the printer or um, how to bind something correctly or what the proper binding technique was. I do remember back at the publishing company, in the first six months that I started, uh, I was tasked with creating a book, and it was an eighty around an eighty-page perfect bound book. Which, if you know what a perfect bound book is, it's the type of binding that does not use staples; it uses different uses different registers of paper to create what is a paperback book. Essentially, um, it's not a cheap thing to print, and we had to print twenty thousand of them. And it had different topics listed on the cover. Uh, And as placeholder text, I put the topics from the year before from the same program. Um, Whole book, 80 pages of it. You can see where this is going. Yeah, I know (laughs) what's happening here. Um, I can see you about to get hit by this bus. Yep, yep. Went through multiple rounds um, of approval processes. uh, Got printed. And then someone who was in the front office came the day they came in and said, hey, we have the same topics from last year. That's odd. That's never happened before. And I looked at it and my stomach fell onto the floor. So this was after all 20,000 had been all printed? All 20,000 had been printed. About a I'm getting buck and a half a piece. Just thinking about this. <laughs> I know. My stomach hurts. And I thought... Did you just gonna, quit? I mean, I'm going to be. Just I'm going to be fired. So I, you know, they're I like, had "You're to, fired." He's like, and "I quit." <laughs> yeah. Did you just? I mean, I would have literally just walked out and be like, I, "You know what? You guys don't don't even pay me." <laughs> no, but I'm pretty sure I broke out into like a sweat and was like, "Great." Well, I at that moment I thought I you walked, were going to say tears, so I'm no, impressed. No, no, no I probably would have cried. <laughs> just just some sweat. Probably got all red. Um, I walked into. Um, I think he was the director of operations at the time. The guy I worked with most closely. Um, I explained what had happened. We, I think we sat and stared at the cover for about a minute before anybody Just said a word. Just to make sure that it was real. Like, yep, this yep, definitely happened. This definitely got printed wrong. Um, so uncomfortable. And then we had to reprint because there's no way on a perfect bound book that you you have to reprint the whole book. Man. 
probably about twenty five thousand. Is that why? Is that when you decided? You know what? If this was a website, we could just change it. Yeah, exactly. It. Yeah, that's when I decided it's to like, go into. I that. hate print. It's so <laughs> permanent. <laughs> right. So it's kind of funny because like we've let things accidentally go live on a website before as well. Sure. Um, but it's a much easier to fix on a website than. Yeah, yeah. it's two seconds. Yeah, right? you know, twenty twenty thousand. We actually even did it on this podcast. <laughs> we did let a mistake go live <laughs> on episode three, but <laughs> no You're one to take it down. Yeah, we, we <laughs> took it down. It. And yeah. republish it. Yeah, that's because right. we're champions. You know what? We're just, you know, getting our getting our land legs here. Yeah, we right. were just getting our MVP up, you know? We make mistakes. Everybody makes mistakes. Exactly. And there so I, I think at that moment, we had to reprint. And I remember sitting, I had an office at the time, but the CEO came in. Not after that mistake, you didn't. He came in after that mistake and said, and talked with me and he was super nice about it. That's he good. said, you know what? We're going to look at this as a learning opportunity. Um, of course it, it did come back to me. Now you could argue all day. I, I went through a proofing process and five different people looked at this and checked on that paper. And I think, uh, but I still brought that back to me. I'm the one that never replaced the, the text on the front of the cover. Um, and I think at that point, w- that was a turning point for me because I, it wasn't about, oh, I'm going to have a lessons learned and go back and I'm going to proofread six times next time. Yeah. Um, I think for me from that point on, it was more about, okay, I have more of a role to be able to impact this business than just taking instructions. And I think it changed from this this list of tasks that I had to do. Mm-hmm. That's when my career and job, it, it wasn't a job anymore. I need to have a more, I need to be more aware about what we're trying to accomplish, what the Double goals check are of the project. Right? Yeah. And go through, and this is, I'm owning this product at the end of the day. Someone's not just telling me exactly how to do it. Um, and that's been a huge part of how I approach things today is that I'm always asking questions. Hey, are, you sure this is right? Not because of that one instance, but I think that made me think I'm not, I'm not just sitting here taking instructions from somebody. Yeah. This is my job too, to make sure this is quality stuff. Um, and I got to be a better designer from that. And I got to be, um, just better overall in my career and, and work smarter for clients. So it only takes one yeah. major screw up like that to start to Oh, you know what? Maybe I should pay attention more often on my job. <laughs> yeah. So um, one thing that we wanted to ask you about, somebody who's sort of bounced around from design discipline to the next one. Sure. What did you learn perhaps in environmental design or print design that you took with you into web design that somebody who is just starting out in web design might not have the same insights that you do having come from those other backgrounds? Well, I think there's a lot uh, similar and there's a lot different. Uh, similar is in process. And I think all kinds of design, there's a healthy process that um, works and that's being iterative and throwing out just wild ideas and seeing which ones stick. And even if you don't execute upon that wild idea, you can take at least a little nugget from it um, and create something um, better. Whether it's minimally better or um, extremely better, it's different per project, but that's how incrementally things get better. Um, I did have to learn, I realized probably um, pretty far into this job that um, budgets and resources all 
coincide in the digital world too. Um, it's just not necessarily with physical materials, but that budgets still exist for third-party integrations, for um, developers' time is the biggest piece of it. And, you know, I used we to work We cost a lot of money. Yeah, yeah, you guys. You guys are so expensive. <laughs> <laughs> So, so yeah, you learn to think about the consequences of wouldn't it be cool if, well, yeah, that would be cool, but that would take six months. Yeah. Okay. Right. Well, we can't do that. So what can we do in a week? What's the, the middle ground or whatever? Right. So there's a lot uh, that has to do with that. I'd say um, some challenges um, and some things that are different is a lot of just general laws of UX uh, specifically around things like Jacob's Law. So if you're in other... Um, Jacob's Ladder. That's Jacob's Ladder. Jacob's Law, <laughs> I don't... <laughs> Jacob's Law, um, I don't know it word for word, but basically says that people are used to looking at websites in a certain way, are used to certain UI patterns. Um, so don't deviate from that because they're on your website. You're They're on that page for five seconds and they need to know what to do or else they're going to bail. I just want you guys to know, don't Google Jacob's Law. That's not what comes up. <laughs> Did you spell it right? J-A-K-O-B? No, I did not. I wrote J-A-C-O-B, and it's like some (laughs) South Carolina state law. um, Oh, oh, no. Something good to keep in mind if you Google it to learn more. I mean, like, spell Jacob with a K. Nothing amazingly terrible comes up, but I just wanted our listeners to know, like, you should know how to spell it before you look it up. Yeah. So is this sort of the, the idea behind why the floppy disk icon is still used as the save a, icon a little bit right? and why over time it's evolved or the hamburger menu. why the hamburger menu item uh, um, icon is always a hamburger menu icon or some variation of it you could change it and be you know have some wild idea let's change the hamburger into a hot dog, a hot dog. <laughs> <laughs> now sometimes i've now the funny thing is like sometimes you you can do the you know the flipped hamburger if it's like a menu that's going to be a little bit more like vertical or something like that. I've seen it mm-hmm. done before, right. but anyway, right. I was joking, but, but well, when you go into interactive design, um, I think that's the hardest thing to overcome is I came from an environment where, uh, in a, sp- in a 3d physical space, um, they're going to be there a while, but sure they could walk in a store and walk back out if it is just terrible. But they're going to be a while. They're going to have a chance to experience what you have set up. Um, And you don't have that on the web. Same thing for print. At least they get it and they hold it in their hands and they have a second to look at it and they have to make a physical conscious choice to go and put it in the trash. Um, And you can affect that by the way that the paper feels or um, wild printing techniques like UV coating and spot varnishes and all sorts of other things to... Hey, look over here, which kind of the web can do at times too. Um, but on the web, there is the uh, forced side of things where you have to think about the user's mindset and what's going to cause them to bail in two seconds. Yeah, right. so Jacob's Law says users spend most of their time on other sites. This means that users prefer your site to work the same way as all the other sites they already know. Yeah, that's super limiting for somebody who's creative and wants to do, wants to execute upon I hear lots of kinds of ideas, lots of gripes about this because then the effect inherently, right, is that then we start to experience trends where everything just starts to look the same, right? Like once Parallax came out, everybody had Parallax on their site. Every single site had Parallax. And you remember um, people would, this concept of the bootstrap site, you Mm -hmm. know, 
every site looked like a bootstrap site, yep. even if it wasn't using bootstrap because yeah. right. but, I mean, it was really easy to tell if it was a bootstrap site, but everything else sort of became bootstrappy. You know, it's kind of a term that we used. Yeah. yeah. And you live in a world where data is king now. So mm-hmm. there are certain best practices around how e-commerce should work and how people are used to it and how menus and navigation should work. Um, and that's just leading to all the sites looking the same because this is what we know is safe that it will convert a certain number of people as long as we have the right amount of brand recognition. Yeah. Um, so how do you break out from that? I, I think there are ways to do it, but um, it's definitely a challenge in the digital space. It's I think it's being talked about more in the past couple of years because um, the web used to be wild, wild west, like, everything was you had to take more than five seconds on a page to figure out what you were doing um now it's become easier to use but everything started to look the same and so how do we overcome that and create something new and unique and it's it's folded into brand identity projects into everything looking like some hipster joint with thin lines and um established 1842 Established 2016. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like that's I have a lot of somehow um, important to gripes about stuff like that. Yeah. So <laughs> there's definitely a time and a place for that, and that stuff can. That's another episode. Look cool. Yeah. yeah that's, all another, that's a bonus episode. <laughs> bonus episode yeah. on what hipster styles? Indeed. Yeah. Exactly. Well, that's probably a good segue into uh, where we can leave off, which is you actually are going to be talking about some of this stuff coming up at the Big Design Conference in Dallas in September, right? Yes. So at Big Design, um, it'll be a little bit different than what we're talking about today, but um, I think another one of my passions, and this has really just um, been a little bit more recently, uh, but um, talking about web accessibility. And so I, again, being in architecture and interior design, accessibility is a huge part of it. And that was another constraint that I had to learn to live within in developing signage and in developing three-dimensional objects, you realize all of the things you can't do. I understand now why certain things exist in spaces when you see goofy-looking handrails on the floor in some places where there's slanted walls. And, well, it's just smart because it's taking into account somebody with a cane and how they might walk off this ledge or run into this sign over here. And then uh, those that... Uh, are impaired and have to use Braille and raised text. And so it was a huge part of uh, why we made decisions. And there was um, some not so exciting parts to the architecture world for that. We're like making room signage that had Braille and raised letters and all of that. Um, But it all bleeds into the web. And the web is way more new at it, though, than, um, than physical spaces. So they don't really have a regulation around, you know, at least from the Department of Justice on um, what's required for users. These are discussions that we have all the time at LifeBlue. Um, it's definitely in progress, and I think, I hope within the next two years there's a little bit more defined um, regulations around that. Um, but, yeah, that's what I'm going to talk about a little bit at Big Design. Awesome. Cool. Um, for anyone who wants to look further into that, Big Design Conference is going to be at Dallas uh, Gillies, uh, September 19th through the 21st. So JD's talk is at 4 o'clock on that Friday afternoon. 
um, of the conference. So our team is going to be out there. We'll have a, a table with Life Blue. So we'd love to say hi to you. Um, but feel free to come check us out. And where else can people find you online, JD, if they want to stalk you and your design career? Mm. Where's a good place for them to I'm look? I'm terrible at posting any of my stuff online. I do. Ha- I have a website, jdbush.com, which has nothing on it. Okay. <laughs> okay. Cool, cool. I, it even links to a dribble with zero shots. Um, Dang. I know. You know That's what? You miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Who said that? Wayne Gretzky or Michael Scott? <laughs> yeah. So if you would like to connect with JD, you can find him on LinkedIn. Um, and then come out to Big Design in September 19th through the 21st, bigdesignevents.com. We'd love to see you there. You can listen to JD's talk on accessibility. Uh, we're going to be talking through a case study from a recent client and uh, some AA compliance uh, challenges in making stuff beautiful but also accessible. So yeah. um, thanks for chatting about your career with us today, JD. We're really yeah. glad to have you and uh, always glad to have the real conversations about people's careers and just learn a lot about your experience in design because it sounds like you have a lot to bring to the table and a lot of sage wisdom so i'm sure this will not be the only episode uh but thank you for joining us thank you guys